0: sexual self-expression, girl sex 101 and much more this week on Sex Love Joy. You're listening to Sex Love Joy, an interview series in which special guests reveal intimate details about how they connect the dots between Sex Love Joy. I am your host on Orquist. On today's show, I have with me sex educator and author Allison Moon. We talk about falling in love, sexual self-expression, the connection between eroticism and creativity, permission, girl sex, and much more. If you're in Phoenix, I will be there the weekend of April 25th and 26th teaching workshops at the Sexual Health Expo. For more information, visit sexualhealthexpo.com. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for being on Sex Love Joy. Thanks for having me. I have a question for you around labels. Labels, to me, can be so dangerous. I know tons of folks find community and liberation in claiming labels that suit them, but for me, they've been limiting, and once they were my greatest source of discomfort, after doing it all the wrong ways for me, I learned to operate by, this feels good, this is positive for my mind, body, and soul, this is love, this is me. And you said... Something so fucking awesome around this topic that I love a ton. It was a quote about how you identified as a lesbian, and in walks, read and sweeps hmm. you off your feet. Mm-hmm. And the quote was, "You can love anyone regardless of their gender or whatever. It's love, it's attraction. It doesn't have these specific specific rules. Love." is love. Don't turn it away. It is hard enough to find love in this world. Why are you going to say no to it when it is right there in front of you? That's <laughs> that's so fucking epic. <laughs> and I want to know, and I want you to share with the listeners how you shifted your perspective when love surprised you?
1: Oh, wow. That's a really great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you're abs- are absolutely right that labels do have a really important purpose in finding community, in discovering oneself, in kind of maybe rooting out predilections that may, already- may otherwise be hidden. I think that labels can be incredibly nurturing mm-hmm. and important. Um, and I think that they can stay nurturing and important to people who feel that the label really, truly fits them. Um, The more that I live, though, the more people I see eventually becoming damaged by the labels that that did set them such a service in the first place. And this isn't to say that everyone feels that way. I think a lot of people you know, stay in their label for a lifetime. And that's fine and great and wonderful. And I I salute those folks. (laughs) But I do think that the English language, I mean, language in general is just is just too weak to describe the intense, multifaceted nature of humanity. Um, And I think that ultimately, when we talk about sexual orientation, we run up against those issues a lot Um, and those because we might find that again sometimes sex or sometimes sexual attraction and sometimes love doesn't come in the package we were expecting it to come in and I think that when people when that happens to people it can create a lot of emotional strife it can create a lot of of (laughs) difficulty because you know we thought we were one way and now we feel this other way and does this mean that I'm not who I thought I was does this mean that my friends are going to reject me does this Mm -hmm. mean I've been lying to my self or my, my my family my entire life? I mean these questions create such strife when really we're basing them on arbitrary labels based on what we kind of see as patterns of human behavior right? Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of ridiculous in so many ways um, so yeah I think that uh, I, I mean kind of circuitously answer your question I think that for me I just I was very blessed with I suppose a certain reasonable framework for sexual orientation in that You know, I identified as a lesbian for many years because those were my those were the people that I identified most with, and those were my community, and that's where I found love and family, and all of the things that I really needed to feel fulfilled. But then I saw this person that didn't fit any of the paradigms, and I wasn't even actually attracted to him at first because I (laughs) was, you know, he just wasn't my type. Even when I dated men, I didn't date men that looked like him, right? Like he was so different from all of the guys that I ever considered being attracted to. Um, but at the same time, like I was really scared. I was scared that letting him into my life meant having to, uh, you know, shut out all the rest of my life, which at that point was a really strong community. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely came from a place of fear to kind of cling to that identity, but it also felt like the the natural thing to do ultimately, like the the rational, reasonable thing to do was to, let love in. And I'm really glad I did.
0: What's your advice to someone who's at that point where their perspective has shifted or when the person just shows up, like you said, you know, he didn't look like what you were attracted to before. What's your, your best advice for that person who's in the middle of a shift?
1: Oh, chill out, man. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of us kind of are, are, are finding, I mean, especially with the internet, I've noticed this a lot. It's just like we kind of are falling into what I kind of call Tumblr syndrome, where we become so attached, these notions of what's what's supposed to be, um, and we're forgetting the fact that a lot of people who write these essays about what we're supposed to be are probably teenagers.
0: Um, and so, you
1: know, a lot of people have very strong opinions about things. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people have really strong opinions at various stages in their lives, and they use those descriptions to create prescriptions if that makes sense Ooh. we kind of use what works for us and kind of assume that everyone else will feel the same way um, which i think is ultimately of is can be a really troubling problematic paradigm um, so yeah I think ultimately my great advice is to just relax acknowledge that our language is weak our language is faulty the words we have to describe these concepts just don't don't envelop the concepts properly. We're always creating new words to try and describe what humans are already doing and have been doing for millennia. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the notion that we're coming up with these new words that can create resistance by themselves is the fact is is a response to the fact that again people are people contain multitudes, right? Yeah. Um, and we need to be able to and acknowledge that. Um, and so I think that, you know, for those people who might be finding some sort of, you know, em- emotional or intellectual strife as they see themselves shift, I'd say start to talk to other people about their experiences too. Start to realize, uh, start to note that other people have, have probably gone down this path. Multiple times, um, I've no, I've said like I've come out of, I've come out of the closet. I think five times now, and that's the coming out process. I don't think really ever ends for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so when you give yourself permission to kind of be like, I'm gonna come out as kinky, and now I'm gonna come out as monogamous, and now I'm gonna come out as monogamous was a terrible idea for me, you know, <laughs> like all these things. Um, it can be a more, a more exhilarating process than a traumatic one, uh, because then it can be like, look at this cool thing I discovered about myself. Who else is like this? Um, the one thing that I thought was really beautiful when I kind of came out, uh, as having a cisgendered male partner, um, I, you know, I would bring him around to my, my watering holes, right? Like I would h- introduce him to my lesbian friends and I'd bring him to the queer bars, uh, where all my friends would hang out and I started getting these other lesbians who would kind of come up to me and and confess yeah. um, various things. Um, I had, you know, one woman come up to me and say like she she had been married to a man for for I think over a decade, um, but she, none of her friends knew. She obviously had divorced him, but none of her friends knew because she was ashamed to let her friends know that she actually really loved this man. It wasn't some sort of like freak thing before she just found her true self. She really loved him. And even though she was really mostly interested in women and identified as a lesbian, she felt ashamed to talk about that. And I had other lesbian couples who every once in a while would sleep with a man because it was fun, but they didn't (laughs) tell anybody about that either. And I would have all the I would become this like this receptacle of these these women's secrets because (laughs) a lot of them were so afraid that they would be ostracized as well by by their communities for for being either changeable or having, you know, a dick on the side or whatever. (laughs) Right. Um, Because, again, a lot of times people police these boundaries so strongly that it becomes uh, traumatic to try and to bend those boundaries at all.
0: Since you're talking about people confessing. I would love to know what you have gained from speaking your truth.
1: Oh my gosh, so much. Um, well, I mean, I do feel like the fear that I had about losing my community blessedly f- proved to be unfounded. Um, it didn't. It didn't actually end up that I lost any friends, um, and I, I feel very grateful for that because I know that's not everyone's story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I've gained. I've gained so much. I mean, I've gained an eight-year-long partnership that is delightful to me in every way. Um, but I've also gained uh, a queer community that's, a, that's more diverse than my original community had been. Um, and again, like, that's not for everybody. I think there are... I don't want to, you know, be besmirch lesbians who are super t- true blue lesbians and want only lesbian community. I, I absolutely believe that exists and is valid and is wonderful. That just didn't end up being my path. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was really much that I gained... I mean, just like a level of authenticity and integrity that I think is just – a strong base for almost all of my choices, sexual and otherwise, Um, because, you know, being, I don't have a lot of secrets. I mean, my last book before the one that I just wrote was, was a, was, is called Bad Dyke and it is a series of stories from my sex life. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of secrets. Um, And I I realize that's a privilege to be able to kind of spill uh, all of my, all of my dirty laundry. Um, But at the same time, like that is such a, it's, for me, I can't think of any other way to live personally. I think that I'm just, I'm no good at keeping secrets I just (laughs) share things like that um the other day I was talking to Ashley Manta who's a sex educator yeah down in she's
0: awesome
1: she is awesome and uh, she had mentioned um, I don't know if this, she came up with this or, or if it was she was quoting somebody else but she said she wanted to consider herself a beacon a beacon of permission
0: oh yeah
1: um, and that to me really struck me because I feel like that's what a lot of sex educators can do in this mm-hmm. world is just by offering other people offering as many people as who, who care to pay attention to me um, a, a little bit more permission than they may have been granted themselves that like that I can be that person who's like here I'm gonna tell you about pegging my boyfriend and I'm gonna (laughs) getting my pussy eaten by this person I met an hour before like all of those things that worked really well for me might not work for others but that really what I want to offer people is permission to follow love permission to follow lust, mm-hmm. permission to, you know, move away from an identity that they had clung to, permission to choose a new identity that they never thought they'd want. All of those things, I think, are valid. And I, I want people to know that they have that, those options.
0: What I love about you bringing up permission when you were talking about your book, Bad Dyke, is that you teach permission, restraint, rhythm, accountability, respect, comfort, chemistry, momentum, consumption, and analysis as your ten straightforward techniques to practical creativity, and when I saw that, I'm like, "That's those are erotic tools too." So I would love to know: Did the your connection to your sexuality bring that inspire that into your writing, or was it vice versa?
1: Oh my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny when you were listing those, I'm like, "Why do those sound so familiar?" <laughs> Because I, <laughs> I was in sex head for so long. I'm like, I don't even... Yeah, so you, I mean, I think you that... teach
0: writing, too. You're, you've you published, you've self-published, you know, you're, um, is it like four or five books now? Like, it's a lot.
1: It's four. I have four books out. Yeah,
0: yeah. and and you've had two successful Kickstarters, so you're also a really successful writer. And that's what you, you teach with, in your writing workshop. So I saw that. I was like, this is sex, too. She's just... Her creativity or her sex, they, they're they like meshed. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more because I really appreciate that. It's like the your one website.
0: Thing that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: so funny like wow I should really start considering the, the emergence of those things I mean the one thing that I will say is that deconstruction has mm-hmm. been a is a pretty strong tenant for my my own personal journey both creatively and sexually Yeah. Um, because deconstruction for me is really the the, um, the underlying uh, force behind my ability to transmute the labels you know um, in that I've you know I I don't I don't Attach a whole lot of emotional strife to being, you know, identifying first as bi and then as lesbian and then as queer and then as poly. Like, I I don't feel like I've, I attach too much, you know, emotional baggage to that because I'm a big fan of deconstructionism around. Patterns that we create in our own lives and that seeing what's under underneath those, I think, is really valid. So for me, deconstructing identity and finding out what parts of those identities worked for me and what parts don't um, works just as well as an artistic practice where you start deconstructing notions of cliches and and, you know, weak points where you might just be going into you might be re, you know, reexamining a pattern that doesn't work for your your work, whether yeah. you know, artistic or otherwise, and deconstructing what's underneath those to try and find the actual juice.
0: I keep saying always to everyone that I had to learn how to do it all the wrong way and almost lose it all before I figured out the right way. So it it was deconstructed. (laughs) You know, I was, what struck me was the permission and then restraint was a second word. So I would love to hear what your advice for someone who just wants to travel a totally new road with either their work or their sexuality, because it's all so related and they're just they're right there at the doorstep and don't know how to cross it.
1: Wow. Well, I think, I I think the first step is always permission. Uh, and again, this is something that I talked about in in practical creativity and talk of a lot about in teaching art stuff, uh, is because for me, uh, getting to the place where I gave myself permission to identify as a writer and permission to actually write things and share them with the world, um, I didn't give myself that permission for a long time. And um, ultimately, it was a lot of uh, stuff associated with shame um, yeah. around my racial identity. Actually, it was a big part of it. You know, t- white guilt really played into my inability to share my voice with the world mm-hmm. uh, because I didn't. But you're want a great ally to- now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I didn't want to take up too much room. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a very womanly quality as well. Yeah, I think I was is. probably ascribing that to my race a- as a way of me being able to negotiate that for myself. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I didn't want to take, you know, the precious airtime away from other people people who might deserve more to speak, um, which I think is kind of a problematic notion in the first place because, you know, it's, it's treating uh, a voice as though it's a, a limited uh, asset. Yeah, like there's not is the,
0: enough room for all our voices.
1: Right, exactly, which yeah. of course is not the truth. Um, so for me, really giving myself permission to write and to write a book and to, and in many ways with self-publishing, I mean, I chose to self-publish even though I had a traditional Um, I had traditional paths I could have pursued, Mm -hmm. um, but I gave myself permission to self-publish because I really wanted to kind of Take, claim that space as powerfully as possible as a writer saying like I deserve to write, I deserve to publish this on my own terms, I deserve yeah. to and it was a real exercise for me um, and I think that that's very much the same first step that anybody needs to come to when it comes to a, a sexual path is just as much as a creative path is that you, you have to give yourself the permission. Nobody else is going to give you the permission. People might tell you but ultimately you're still going to be the one holding you back. Um, so You know, you have to give yourself permission to follow that path, to follow love, to follow desire, wherever it goes, because if you don't give yourself permission, you can't do any of the rest of the work.
0: What does it feel like to have two highly successful Kickstarter campaigns and what have you learned from delivering to the people what they wanted?
1: Oh, my God. charge more for international shipping than you think you need to uh yeah i mean honestly it's a lot of practical stuff uh the this kickstarter for girl sex 101 i'm i'm deeply buried under a pile of shipping uh bubble wrappers right now uh it is it is an intense project uh like and it's hard it's been harder than the writing of the actual book (laughs) which is amazing
0: the delivering part has been harder
1: yeah yeah just because i'm now i'm managing a lot of expectations because i'm one person i have not properly delegated uh so I've been sending out all six hundred books. Um, I and saw
0: the pictures when the pallet arrived, and that blew my uh, mind. I was and th- didn't you have to travel right after they had arrived?
1: Yeah, the books came the day that I was flying to Seattle. Uh, so my partner, bless his heart, uh, got to practice his big burly man drag and uh, <laughs> put on, all the books up in my office. Oh my um, god! And that was actually only half of them. The other half <gasps> was still on their way. <laughs> So, yeah, oh again, a wonderful problem to have. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the fact that, you know, the Kickstarter made $25,000, 600 people bought books. Like, I am not at all complaining about the wild success that I've had. Um, it's really more of just the logistical nightmare that goes into it, <laughs> which has been very challenging. Um, but I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to in this, again, this kind of unfortunately womanly quality of not banging one's own drum. Uh to do a successful kickstarter, you kind of have to harass the public as much as possible. Yeah. You have to say, I deserve this. I deserve to take up space. I will follow through on this project, and here's why you should you know, help, uh, which is a very hard place for a lot of people to get to, um, especially when they're undergoing this for the first time. I, I got to practice this on my second lesbian werewolf novel two years ago or three years ago at this point um, because it was a much smaller project. I had a much lower goal. I really just wanted to pay my my graphic designer and my editor, you know, fair wages. And so I wasn't really I wasn't going pie in the sky with girl sex 101. It was such a bigger book. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I the
0: illustrations too.
1: Yeah. There are illustrations on every page. And it's so, you know, I worked with my illustrator, Katie diamond, but you know, she worked her tail off. And so it was for me like making sure I paid her. I have 15 guest sex educators in the book. So I I wanted to pay them. And so, yeah. And then of course, like the more people support the book, the more the costs go up for ordering them. Yeah. Yeah. Just ordering, you know, Wow, I guess it was 600 copies at this point. Um, it's, that's That's a. Amazing big chore. So yeah, and it's big. It's a big money. So that's been a it's been fascinating because it's allowed me to really examine my business strategy much faster than I would probably naturally because I was like, oh, suddenly this influx of money, I have to budget very clearly. I, I am um, I'm beholden to a lot of expectations from people who, you know, put their faith in me. So it's been a responsibility I've taken fairly strongly.
0: I want to talk more about Girl Sex 101. And I definitely want you to please, please, please tell us about The concept of building a roadmap of your partner's pleasure.
1: Cool. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, I mean, the metaphor really came out of the fact that I – when I taught this class, the, the, so the the workshop Girl Sex 101 is what inspired the book. And I'd been teaching the workshop around the US and Canada for a while. Uh, so for me, it was, I had talked about, you know, kind of how you do have to follow a certain roadmap. And that roadmap is, is, design, is given to you by your partner's voice, by your partner's size, by your partner's body heat, by your partner's touch, um, which is a very challenging map to follow sometimes, especially if we're with a partner who may not be as verbal uh, as we might like and uh, it's really it can be challenging sometimes but I, I wanted to treat sex as not just you know a straight highway you know yeah. but really you're kind of you're winding and, and weaving and going up hills and down into valleys it's this it is really a journey um, and so the metaphor about that really worked for me um, so I wanted to kind of take people on a journey in a certain way where we kind of we spend some time on certain concepts and some other concepts we might breeze by real fast but ultimately we're all on the same we're all on the same path to try and get to the same place around sexual expression and feeling confident in bed
0: sexual expression is is such a path to everything else i mean because society doesn't want us to be fulfilled in that way they I think it's one of the biggest ways that they hold us down and also you, you mentioned this and about like being inclusive and making room for other voices and that's something that was important for you in this project can you talk more about how the book is trans inclusive and some of the other areas that you made sure were covered in this book
1: sure um there are a lot of things that i just knew that i wanted people to talk about and i mm-hmm. knew that i was not the best person to talk about those things um so i actively sought out some voices some of the voices kind of like i like for instance uh, claudio astrino who's this amazing writer uh i read an a piece of hers on autostraddle talking about her life as an intersex person and um you know just being an activist around that and the, as, when i read her essay i'm like i need to talk about this in girl sex and so I invited her to submit a piece as well Um, and so uh, I think there's just so many subtle things that happen in you know around sex and that I couldn't possibly stand on a soapbox and be the only person educating because there are so many things that I just you know I might have slept with somebody who gave gave me some good information about it but that's not the same as hearing it from their voice Um, (laughs) and trans inclusivity I mean I I had originally I had three trans women one dropped out Um, so Julia Serrano wrote this amazing piece about identity that I think is actually really valuable because it does talk about her identity as a trans woman but it's actually more inclusive around just how to understand your identity sexually in general, which I think is very valuable. again like you know she talks about being a cancer survivor and how that's just as valid of as around her sexuality as being a trans woman is yeah. and, and that's a really I think that's a really important thing for people to remember particularly because so often transness is considered this huge issue that is so un, un, insurmountable. Um, that that it becomes, you know, I think it can kind of create so much more strife than necessary when mm-hmm. we can just treat it like anything else around how we talk about our bodies and how what we like and what we don't like. And I also invited Toby Hillmeyer, who's this amazing activist and writer and pornographer and uh, like artist, to uh, to actually talk in about uh, various concepts. So we actually sprinkled her stuff throughout the book, which is really fun. These small things here and there around just things to consider when we talk about you know, trans bodies, um, things like pregnancy risk if you're sleeping with a trans lesbian who wants to use her penis, right? Like these are, that's a thing that a lot of lesbians probably don't ever think about, right? Like, oh yeah. my God, I could get pregnant. But but it's just something that you need to talk about if you're sleeping, if you are a trans woman or sleeping with a trans woman and you want to use your bits in that way. Um, I thought that was so valuable and so and so helpful, uh, especially nowadays, because I think that as we talk about trans inclusivity around queer community, you know, what used to be this very bifurcated path, right? You're either like a, a lesbian or you were, you know, something else or someone else who would be interested in sleeping with all sorts of other people. And now we're seeing that lesbians and trans women are not. We are not; those are not mutually exclusive categories, right? Yeah. You can be a trans lesbian, and you can be a, a, a cis woman who's interested in trans women as a lesbian. Like, and there's there's so much room there. Um, so I knew that I needed to have people who could speak from their their experience to talk about, um, you know, what they like, how they meet women, how they talk about things. Um, and that was really important to me. So I had these two women who got like a, the spotlight in the book, but I also had what I call um, my Oh, what did I, I? My Trans Girl Brain Trust, uh, which was another group of women who are r- really lovely human beings and super smart and uh, super gracious in letting me ask them in deeply invasive questions that you should never ask somebody without permission um, about their sex lives. And so it was great because I got, you know, I was able to sprinkle that information in as well, where it was relevant around things like hand sex and anal sex and cunnilingus and all these fun things that, again, we kind of always ascribe to people who are born with vaginas but ultimately there's a whole range of fun things you can do with people who are you know non-op trans women or post-op trans women so so many cool things
0: (laughs) and you guys did a a survey for the book right
1: yeah we i I put together a a very comprehensive survey uh probably comprehensive to a fault a lot of people complained about it It was too long (laughs) Um, but uh, again i really I, i don't think that it's I don't think anybody is served by a book about sex that is by one person. Yeah. Um, I get so exhausted when I read sex ed books that are so obviously prescriptive, based on one person's experience about sex. Um, they talk about it as though our bodies are all the same. They talk about it as all as though pleasure moves through all of us the same. I I get so tired of it. Um, and as a queer woman, like you know, if I want to read a book about cunnilingus, it's almost always talking about a man eating a woman out, um, or you know, if you talk about, if you just read a general book about sex, it's almost always hot, skinny white people, uh, you know, showing penis-vagina stuff. And I'm like, really? It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just so not. it into the thing it's like, it's just not my experience of sex.
0: And it's not um, even a lot of white people's
1: experience
0: of sex. Exactly. I'm like, I've
1: never <laughs> slept with anybody with abs ever. <laughs> I mean, they might be under there somewhere, but yeah, no. I mean, like. <laughs> And I, it's just like there's there's a there's a time and place for you know fantasy, and I, I absolutely think that's valid. But honestly, like if we're going to talk uh, to people like about real things, about real sex lives, I think it's it's important to show real bodies, yeah, um, which don't always work the way you you think they're supposed to, and they don't always have genitals that look the way you're that you think they're supposed to. I think that's really important. Um, because I just I get so shut out of those books. And I'm again, like, I've got a lot of privilege around my body. But at the same time, I still feel alienated by that stuff. So I can only imagine how hard it is for people who don't have fit into the stereotypes, right? Um, So yeah, I think that, you know, I just wanted to show the ver- the multiple possibilities that are inherent in sexual pleasure.
0: What's the one Thing that you want readers to come out of reading the book with, or that you hope that they get from the book, is a Bruce Lee quote. Ooh, yeah! <laughs>
1: I it's, can't wait to hear this. Yeah, so it's adapt what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own.
0: Ah, oh, so
1: I love your brain, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: I've loved your brain for a long time. You keep <laughs> finding ways to like, I'm, you know, make me shut up. <laughs> Not a lot of people can do that.
1: (laughs) Oh, thanks, I think. (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, because I'm like, whoa, that's like... I didn't even know i'm like bruce lee of all people
1: (laughs) yeah it is kind of funny i think um uh dj glitch mob i'm not sure if you're familiar with them uh it was (laughs) very funny i got a um i got a message or i got i saw a tweet from glitch mob um about the book when they read the bruce lee quote i'm saying they because i actually don't know if it's more than one person who tweeted it or not but they said it's like reading a Oh, I can't remember. It was so good. Uh, reading this book, reading this sex book for queer women feels like a sacred sorcery training manual.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> so really like, awesome.
1: That, <laughs> that is that's... absolutely what I want this book to be. I want this book to be like a sacred sorcery training manual.
0: <laughs> and I think you did say that somewhere, that it was a guide for anyone who, who loves women or has sex with them. I want to ask you some non-sex stuff, more of like just the you. I want to know what what kind of tips and simple things you do for your own self-care
1: oh self-care oh yeah i'm I'm good at that um i'm a deep deep introvert and a lot of people don't don't believe me because no i can do this (laughs) right i've heard you tell
0: stories and you are like fucking amazing with the (laughs) microphone
1: in your hand Thank you, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, can, I can find those reserves of energy to be on stage and be charming and, and you know, tell jokes or whatever. I, I can, get, I can do that. Um, but it exhausts me. I feel like I'm a little video game character who's slowly losing health hearts. Um, the longer I'm, you know, in front Out of, of your path.
0: box. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So, I um,
0: so love that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, I mean, like I'm so for me, self-care very much looks like alone time. Uh, Sometimes it's a hot bath. Um, actually, speaking of video games, I'm, I'm very excited tonight to go home and play some Wii because I've been, uh, been revisiting The Twilight Princess, which is my favorite video game. And I'm like, I'm going to replay this in between packing things because packing is exhausting. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing that a lot. And, uh, it's really great because my partner and I, we have an open relationship. Um, and he's a sex educator too. And so he travels quite a lot. Um, and so when he travels, I'll be sad for about a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll be really excited to have, hopefully the place to myself for a little while. Um, so for me, that's very much how I recharge. And, you know, at the same time, like I also, also do love getting fucked really amazingly sometimes too. That's self care. Um, and luckily I have a partner who's more than willing to oblige. So, Generally speaking, yeah, that's, that's how that looks. And I also find writing to be a strong source of self-care. I know that everybody's got a different feeling about how writing moves through them and how, you know, challenging and hard it can be. Um, but when I get into that groove, that flow, um, it really feels like I'm truly alone with my thoughts, um, in like almost a meditative space. And that to me feels deeply recharging and invigorating.
0: You? have this way of carrying yourself and you come off as very empowered and in your skin and sensual. I want to know when you feel most beautiful. Ah!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Golly, when I feel most beautiful. I don't know if I think of myself that way. And I don't mean that in any sort of self disparaging way. I just don't think of feel feeling beautiful. Huh?
0: But in when I've been around your presence, you were very much in your skin. So do you have any tips for that of how, how you got there?
1: Oh, golly. Because you don't
0: shrink. In person, I've never seen you shrink.
1: Yeah, I don't tend to. Um, I, I tend to surround myself with people that value me and I value. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely have shrunk in the presence of people who are complete idiots. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I think that's actually something like I'm, and this is a whole thing around activism that I'm, I need to work on is that I tend to take people, I'm kind of a misanthrope, but at the same time, I tend to assume that nobody's going to be an outright horrible person. Yeah. And then when people are outright horrible people, like say something's horribly racist or sexist without me even like thinking, I'm like, I get so taken aback by that. It's sometimes hard for me to respond in the moment because I'm so, I'm so paralyzed with, with, I'm so dumbfounded by that kind of thing sometimes. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I guess it's good to, to think of the best of people, but I think it's it's been hard to, at the same time, like, walk away from a situation where I knew I should have said something, you know? Yeah. Um, so, again, that kind of goes back to, like, I surround myself with wonderful people who value me and whom I value, Um and, you know, I think that for me, it's really I also I feel like I was blessed with really excellent parents who never made me apologize for the kind of person that I was. Um, I think too often a lot of t- times people grow up in households that teach them to make themselves invisible or silent. Um, and so that that translates into their adult lives and they have to do a lot of work to try and deconstruct that for themselves so that they can actually live empowered. Um, I luckily did not have to go through that journey because I grew up in a household with parents who who told me that I was valid and valued and loved every day. Um, and so I think for me, it's, it feels good to be able to have that just kind of, again, as a, as a strong base, you know, as a strong core of my, my identity. Cause I feel like it does make me a little bit invincible.
0: Yeah. And it helps you. If you have kick-ass parents like that, you're not going to accept any type of shitty treatment from people. You just weed them out and, and you build that, that core That where you might not see yourself as beautiful, but because you are so much within yourself that's what you portray like this beauty and sensuality and sexiness that you might not even be like, Oh, this is what I embody, but other people see it. And it's mm-hmm. just you being you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's even cooler sure that you don't see yourself that way. <laughs> that's
1: well, it's funny. Cause like now that, as you say that I'm kind of like, okay, like I think I have an, an answer and I think it's because I have a very loud and distinctive laugh. Um, <laughs> and I was made fun of for it at times, but I also get compliments on it all the time. And I think that, when I laugh, like guffaw, like unabashedly laugh, um, I definitely am bigger than I am in pretty much any other part of my t- part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel beautiful in that place. I think that's kind of like for orgasm, right? Like it's like I think there's a quote that's gone around quite a lot. That's uh, you know, it's impossible to have low self esteem at the point of orgasm, right? <laughs> like you can hate yourself up until you have an orgasm. You can hate yourself immediately after. But when you're having an orgasm. There's love there, you know. There's you can't you you love yourself at that moment if no other time, Um, and I think like it's the same way with me for with laughter is that. When I'm laughing, uh, I don't give a shit if I'm too loud. Uh, I'm fine with that. And then maybe afterwards I'll feel a little bit ashamed of it. But at those, those times, I feel yeah, absolutely within my power.
0: I want to know what's the first thing you notice about other people?
1: Style, personal style. Really? Yeah. And it's not just clothes. It's just everything from top to bottom. Um, it's just really funny because you know how people are like, oh, I'm a boob guy or whatever. It's like <laughs> I don't notice people's bodies necessarily. I just notice the way that they carry themselves. Um, and which is, you know, for me, the most attractive thing is if, if I like your style, I probably like you.
0: So, but. But by style, you mean how you carry yourself, not necessarily how someone dresses?
1: No, I mean, that's something like I think it's, I think for me, like the the sexiest thing, you know, there are sapiosexuals and all sorts of different people people who are attracted to different things. For me, I am most sexually and also intellectually attracted to people who love themselves. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, I mean, you can always tell when somebody is, you know, tough guy because their creamy nougat of their core is fragile (laughs) and weak. Um, But I think you can also tell those people who walk from a place of strength because they are that kind of untouchable. They are that unfuckable with kind of thing. I like those people a lot. I like people who love themselves regardless. Um, when they look in the mirror and they can see, like, I got this, those are the people that I like being around. So yes, it, it is kind of a, it's definitely, it's more than the, the clothes you wear, the hairstyle you have, although that stuff sometimes plays into it. Um, people who take risks with the way that they look tend to in my experience um, you know have something going on that's exciting to me but at the same time yeah like there's it's this unflappable core of, of righteousness that I find to be very attractive
0: you know where my brain went with this where my brain went to reads date your species. <laughs> I was like, she's, she's talking about her. <laughs> you're talking about like, you notice your species. That's what you're noticing. That's so mm-hmm. crazy.
1: <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. I mean, with Reed, when I met him, again, like to think, like I wasn't immediately attracted to him because he didn't look like the kind of guy that I, I dug. But the more I spent time with him, the more I saw that species thing the more I saw a a dude who I could like throw down with you know
0: and when you were describing what you thought as style as something that attracts you and that you notice I was visioning like you know I had a picture of what you are because you're unafraid to play with your hair color or your style and you just you you have this presence about you that is just it seems unknockable like you can't I can't knock
1: you <laughs> thank you yeah and I, I mean I think that that does play into again like the strength of my partnership is that yeah. you know when I'm I, I think w- one of the reasons why I identified so strongly as a lesbian for so long is that I I didn't like men telling me how to look and I found it was impossible to avoid that. When I dated men um, in the subtle or overt ways in which men are taught that they can tell women what they what they should look like. Um, And so with Reed, when I when we hung out and the more when we started dating, I'm like, I was you know, I didn't I don't shave my armpits. I didn't shave my legs. Um, And he's like, cool. That's (laughs) awesome. Like he loved it that I was he, he he and he's told me even now, like eight years in, you know, like sometimes we have these insecurities as like the relationship gets older. I'm like, oh, no, like we're growing old together. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I asked him, like, you know, would you like it more if I, you know, had natural hair color? Would you like it more if I shaved my armpits? And he's like, I, I like you liking how you look. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as they're the choices that you make. That make you happy. That's what I find sexy about you. And I love that because that's absolutely true for my own sense of my sexiness is that I feel sexiest when I'm making choices for my body that are fun, changing my hair color, getting tattoos, growing my hair out or shaving my like whatever. Like those things are, are absolutely part of my, my self expression. And to have a partner who is down with that and is, is thrives on that is what made me realize the specialness in him. And again, which makes me feel sexy. So yummy. Since you're a wordsmith, describe yourself in five words or less. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you keep on putting me on the
1: spot. Five words Did or less? Did you think it was
0: going to be easy?
1: No. <laughs> no. Dang, girl. Okay. Um. Five, you know who
0: gave me this one? Charlie.
1: Who? Charlie Glickman. Damn it, Charlie Glickman. you got to give me preparation for this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, yeah, the... the and I think that I really love that you brought up the the creativity stuff that I've mm-hmm. talked about um because not a lot of people go there with you know interviews about sex but I absolutely believe that they come from the same place both creativity and sexuality are are all are both you know rooted in creation and I think that for me create creation is is an absolute value that I have um I believe in making new things for the world so I'd say that's probably one of my values
0: So creations one of your words Yeah and you do a lot of it.
1: I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean I feel like right now I'm incredibly fertile. Um, you know, I'm I'm 33. I'm I f- am I'm, I'm f- fertile in the way that some women are around, you know, wanting to have babies. I don't have that desire in my life, but I do have the desire to to make things that will have a life of their own after I'm gone.
0: That's your legacy. Those are babies too.
1: Oh, yeah, my book babies.
0: Yes, they're your babies, too. (laughs) They don't even need the word book in front of them, you know, to quantify them. They're your babies, too. Yeah, it's true. They're –
1: I mean, they'll they'll probably cost a little bit less to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You were, like, you were telling me about all this stuff around putting out this great Kickstarter campaign, and I'm like, oh, my God, I so don't want to do that now. (laughs) It makes
1: me think that every new mom should start a Kickstarter for themselves, being like, bitches, I'm putting this kid through college. Like, I'm going to kickstart this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I want you to tell the listeners about whatever's on the horizon for you. I know you have a book launch coming up and where they can find you. And then I have like the final three questions that I usually close with.
1: Okay. So, um, girlsex101.com is where you can find me. The book itself comes out on April 9th, which is, or April 7th, rather, which is a Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, actually. Um, and the book launch will happen in May in Oakland, California. So if you yeah,
0: are. you have a book launch May 10th or 9th?
1: May 9th. It's a Saturday. It's a Saturday before Mother's Day, actually. So oh, yeah, uh, that's right. If you want to treat yourself to some hot lesbian uh, party action, come to before Mother's Day. Uh, come, <laughs> come to Oakland. Uh, and so you can find all that information on GirlSex101.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Allison Moon with two L's and uh, on Twitter at, with GirlSex101 as well. Allison, sex is Sex is beautiful. Love is. Love is the core. Joy is. Joy is the result. Oh.
0: <laughs> you know how to shut me the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Allison, for being on Sex of Joy.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Sex Love Joy. For more interviews like this one and my other work, please visit sexlovejoy.com. I hope that listening to today's guests talk about living their truths helps you in your quest to do the same. Remember, thriving ain't easy, but adding a little sex love joy to your day makes the living a whole lot juicier. Until next time.